0: Join us as we explore the exciting past of the grand state of Texas from the archives of the Texas Collection. Host Dr. Mary Landon Darden will introduce Texas history writers who will tell dramatic and often little-known Texas tales right here on Treasures of the Texas Collection.
1: The first three decades of the 20th century in Waco were times of explosive growth and booming economy, driven largely by the thriving cotton industry. And where business bustled, you could be sure to see two names emerge again and again as the go-to guys for erecting monuments to prosperity, Roy E. Lane and Milton Scott, architects of Central Texas. Terry Joe Ryan, freelance writer and vice chairperson of the Waco History Project, has lived in the Waco area for more than eight years. In her ramblings around town as a professional writer she has driven past some of these wonderful old structures hundreds of times but rarely ventured inside for a closer
0: look Welcome back to the show Terry Joe Hey and thanks for having me back to discuss these influential designers of early 20th century Waco <laughs> So why is it that you have not toured these historic buildings Terry Joe Well, for one thing, many of the surviving Roy E. Lane or the Milton Scott buildings are still in private hands being used as uh, primary residences. And so, uh, But there's a few prominent exceptions, of course, around town. Uh, These public venues like the Alaco Building and the old Riggins Raleigh Hotel, which is now Federal Building. Uh, There's the Waco Hippodrome, the Dr. Pepper Museum, and churches, of course, such as First Baptist Waco or St. Francis on the Brazos Catholic Church. Well, before
1: we delve into the buildings themselves and what the ma- made them stand the test of time,
0: tell us first about the people who created them. Sure, I'll uh, start with Roy E. Lane. Uh, Roy Elsbeth Lane was born in Kansas City, Missouri, in 1884. He received his early education there, and he later studied at the University of Minnesota, from where he uh, from which he earned his degrees in architecture and civil engineering. Uh, he moved to texas in 1907 settling in waco and established an architectural office here and he married a local woman named katherine uh in 1911 And he quickly earned a reputation as a skilled practitioner of form and function. And for the next two and a half decades, he designed numerous buildings in Central Texas. Uh, These included the Waco Public Library and the W.W. Cameron Residence. He also had a hand in the design of the 22-story Amicable building. We'll talk about more of that later. And that dominates the Waco skyline to this very day. Was he solely a Waco architect, or was he commissioned across the state? Well, word spread of his talents, and he was hired throughout the Lone Star State. Besides his work in Waco, he also designed courthouses in Bosque and Runnels counties, for example. And, uh, in fact, in 1936, he moved his entire practice to Dallas. Uh, Among his best-known works there were the Southwestern Motor Freight Bureau, the Hager Slacks Company plant, and the Guyberson Corporate Office building. Uh, He was among the founding members of the Texas Chapter of the American Institute of Architects and the Texas Association of Architects, serving as the president of the TAA in 1918 through 1919. In 1954, he was elevated to an honorary membership in the Dallas Chapter of the American Institute of Architects. He died in Dallas on August 7, 1956, and was buried at Restland Memorial Park.
1: Sounds like he was tremendously busy Uh, throughout his long career.
0: Oh, indeed. I mean, in 1910, he was hired by the Consortium of Prominent Waco Businessmen to help uh, in the redesign of the resurrected Texas Cotton Palace Exposition. Uh, The original Cotton Palace, you might know, was at 13th Street and Clay Avenue, and it was opened in 1894 for a three-week extravaganza of entertainment, exhibits, and social (laughs) soirees. But alas, it was destroyed by fire about six months after it opened, and it was not rebuilt for more than 15 years. Um, by late uh, by late 1911, according to a Waco newspaper clipping, he was already being recognized as a municipal powerhouse. Uh, In an article about his being named the new president of the Young Men's Business League, the newspaper likened his influence in civic affairs to the importance of the mayor in terms of power and prestige. Um, The Young Men's Business League was the precursor to today's Greater Waco Chamber of Commerce, and it was, to use the language of the day, I love the way they wrote back then, (laughs) uh, quote, composed of upward of 1,000 of the flower of the young business element of this city, unquote. Uh, at the times, of course, he was very occupied with designing Waco public schools, private homes, business structures, public facilities, and churches. He designed many of the landmark buildings we know in downtown Waco. Uh, the Riggins Hotel, also known as the Raleigh Hotel at 8th Street and Austin Avenue, which is now federal office building. Um, He was one of the designers of First Baptist Church, which is at 5th Street and Webster Avenue. That sanctuary was dedicated back in 1908, and it features a beautiful domed ceiling, ringed balcony, and stained glass windows. Uh, In 1913, he designed the Waco Hippodrome Theater at 724 Austin Avenue. Uh, It was a vaudeville house that opened to the public in February 1914. At the Texas Collection, you can see a lot of his sketches for the Hippodrome and the early photos of the finished product. Uh, tickets for the shows back then were only $0.10 cents for adults, $0.05 cents for kids, and the box seats were only a quarter. Hmm. And the theater was operated by a man named H.P. Hulsey, and it was known at the time as Hulsey's Hip. <laughs> Later, it was affiliated with the Paramount Studios chain. A fire in the projection booth in 1928 destroyed much of the front of the building, and the consequential renovation resulted in the Spanish colonial revival style that the folks now see. And so the popular theater reopened in 1929 under new management with a new name, the Waco Theater. And uh, which was about the same time as it made the transition to talkies, so that was kind of a convenient fire, if you think about it. Uh, <laughs> they survived three rounds of renovations until it closed in the late nineteen seventies, and uh, but a six-year project in the nineteen eighties to renovate it as a community performing arts center led to both the reopening in February nineteen eighty-seven and its eventual addition to the National Register of Historic Places.
1: I remember when that happened, ah, Terry yeah. Joe. Who were some of the leading citizens Roy Lane designed homes for back in the day?
0: Ah, well, I was tickled to find in the archives of the Texas Collection a leather-bound book of his, a portfolio of sorts that cataloged some of his many commissions. Uh, A lot of those appeared to have been shot by Fred A. Gildersleeve, who was, Uh as you know, the leading commercial photographer in town of that era. Indeed. Uh, Sometimes the speculative drawing was in Lane's own hand and uh, accompanied the photographs of the homes. So he designed the homes of the merchant princes, Asher and Sam Sanger, members of the Sanger brothers' mercantile dynasty. Uh, He also did the home of Robert S. Lazenby, uh, the beverage chemist and early uh, executive of Dr. Pepper fame. Uh, he also did the update of the 1890s William Waldo Cameron home uh, for the business tycoon son of the Scottish immigrant timberman who built his fortune in lumber in Waco back in the 1870s. And then the S.P. McClendon home. Uh, Mr. McClendon was an executive with the Tom Paget Company, which is the oldest uh, surviving business in Waco. A Texas State Historical Marker notes that one of the still-standing homes that he designed uh, was called the Flowers House uh, at 600 West 3rd Street in Eddy, and it was the home of a local cotton gin operator named Felix A. Flowers and his wife, Lucinda Mixon Flowers, who was a local social and civic leader. It was completed in 1910, and the house reflects the craftsman influences evident in much of Lane's work of that era. It's a reminder, of course, of the economic prosperity that cotton brought to the area in the early 20th century. And that house remained in the Flowers family until it was sold in 1957.
1: Terry, Joe, what about that B&B down on
0: Austin Avenue and 19th? Was that one of his? Oh, indeed. That was one of his private commissions. Uh, the home, uh, it's located at 1910 Austin Avenue, and it was designed originally for the William H. Johnson family. Johnson and his father, C.L. Johnson, owned a large lumber company at 8th Street and Clay Avenue. And the younger Johnson moved to California in 1917 and sold the house to the Stanton family. And they lived there more than 30 years before it was purchased by the J.D. Metz family, which owned it until about 1962. And then the house went to the G.A. Durham's of Durham Business College fame. And they lived there only a few years before it was turned into a series of uh, little kindergarten operations. The Ronan Lacey Jr. family took possession of 1910 Austin Avenue in 1973, uh, but it remained a private residence until a business partnership in 1980 opened a retail establishment called the Austin Arrangement. Later, a new owner operated Max's restaurant in the house until William and Doreen Ravenscroft opened a retail flower shop in the house in 1985. But uh, since 1998, the house uh, at 1910 Austin Avenue has been operated as a bed and breakfast known as the Cotton Palace. And it's owned by Becky Hodges and Dutch and Betty Schroeder. And their renovations have restored many of the distinctive characteristics of that Craftsman style. Most notably, the original green rookwood tile fireplace that uh, throughout the years has been painted a variety of colors. Uh, the original light fixtures, the brass door knocker, and the ceiling beams and ornamental woodwork. So, I have toured that building. It is beautiful. Oh, I mean, it sounds dreamy. I'd love to stay there sometime. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, though, many of Lane's uh, private designs, um, or his designs for private homes, I should say, have been destroyed. Um, For example, he designed the Waco Clubhouse, which burned down in the 1920s, uh, the Waco Opera House, the State House Hotel, the Savoy Hotel, the New Katy Hotel, and the Arkenhold Building, among the other lost buildings of Waco. But, you know, you can still see some of his genius at work at the Cottonland Castle, 3300 Austin Avenue.
1: Ah, the famous castle. But I understand that Lane didn't design that building.
0: Well, he he didn't do the original work. That's true. He was brought in around 1910 to help finish what had been started 20 years earlier when a man named John Tennant, a stone contractor, had made a deal with a banker, J.W. Mann, for a square tract of land, 350 feet by 350 feet. And uh, Tennant carried the leftover cut stone from the then-new Provident Building downtown to his little plot of land, and he started building a stone house. But tenant had financial woes and in 1906 sold the property to cotton broker Ripley Hanrick, who bought it with the agreement that tenant would continue to do that stonework. And uh, the sandstone walls with limestone detailing and the round tower on the northeast corner of the plot went up slowly. And for many months, little if any work was done. So, sometime around 1910, a businessman, Alfred Abiel, a Civil War veteran, bought the property and he hired contractor N.P. Lowry to work with Lane in finishing the castle. Uh, it was finally completed in 1914, nearly a quarter of a century after the project was begun.
1: I've lived here a long time, Terry Joe, and have often passed by the castle. And I've wondered about whether the inside was matching the outside, the wonderful exterior. Can you Ah, talk about that?
0: Well, from uh, the construction notes and some of the research I've done, indeed, I found that the fine materials such as marble and mahogany embellish that interior. The front door to this 6,600-square-foot dwelling is made of solid oak, measuring more than 9 feet tall and weighing 400 pounds. Yet the story goes, it is so well-balanced that the door could be moved by a small child. Hmm. Hmm. The main door opens to an entrance hall, 9 feet by 15 feet in size. You know, I mean, just the entry hall is bigger than a lot of people's apartments. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) To the left, there's a main stairway that goes from the main level to the second floor, which contains all the bedrooms. Uh, But off to the right is a drawing room. Now, the term drawing room comes from the medieval castle term with a drawing room, where the king or the lord of the manor would have his privacy. Uh, The living room measures 18 feet by 24 feet and has a mantle over the fireplace designed to hold a mounted stag head in the tradition (laughs) of medieval castles, of course. Inscribed on the mantle is a Latin phrase, which translates into English reads, The divine guidance of God sustains me. The castle boasts eight fireplaces. Also on the main level is the library, a sunroom with views of the 20-foot by 40-foot swimming pool, and a cabana. The basement level, so to speak, is mostly above ground, and it contains the kitchen, the large pantry, boiler room, a den, and breakfast room. The wine cellar is in the basement portion of the tower, of course. The next higher level of the tower contains part of the stairway landing, and on the floor above that is a boudoir off the master bedroom. And a fourth level is the roof level. There is a second tower over the garage and servants' quarters, and its original function was to hold the water tank. Ah. (laughs) Now, a family named Pipkin lived in the house for many years. Uh, In 1969, it was sold to Mr. and Mrs. W.J. Schwan, and in 1990, the castle was purchased by Mr. and Mrs. Ginsburg. In 1999, Mr. and Mrs. Hatch Bailey purchased the Cottonland Castle, fully furnished as a home in which to reside with their four sons. It was sold again in September 2006 to Ms. Russell Giles and Clarice Carter.
1: Now, Terry, Joe, how much of a hand did Roy Lane have in the design of the famous Alaco Building?
0: The Alico, opened in 1911 as the amicable life insurance company building, was designed by Lane in conjunction with a Fort Worth firm called Sanginet and Stats. Their aim was to make an indestructible building of a classic design, which ended up as a 22-story tower. The construction notes said that the building's lower stories would be, quote, faced with polished granite and limestone richly molded and the upper stories faced with vitrified brick and terracotta. No money has been wasted in useless ornamentation or heavy stucco work, but the design is massive and simple, without the incorporation of any imitation materials. Oh, no. And will be be both artistic and highly pleasing to the eye, indeed. Now, Lane's notes talked a lot about the massive granite columns, three and one-half feet in diameter and 31 feet high. The entrance doors are of a heavy cast bronze and plate glass. He also mentioned the floors and walls would be finished with a selection of highly colored, polished marble imported from Europe and ceiling ornamentation of, quote, Roman gold and metallic effects, unquote. He paid special attention to the passenger elevator service. Quote, there will be three high speed gearless traction elevators, large and commodious cars, having rubber tile floors and being finished in bronze and running at a speed of 650 feet per minute. Unquote. The operators could vary the speed at the time to ensure smooth and easy starting and stopping without any perceptible jar, and these elevators were equipped with the safety of devices and fireproofing uh, that was state-of-the-art in that year. Must have been the talk of the town. Oh, man. During that year-long construction at the corner of 5th Street and Austin Avenue, uh, which started in the summer of 1910, a steady, a steady stream of people would stroll by to view the skyscraper work Every Saturday, which was market day downtown for the country folks of the surrounding communities, it would bring scores of shoppers and gawkers by to see the latest activity at that site. It required more than 30 teams of man and mule to truck all that excavation dirt away from the construction site. A pit 45 feet deep had been dug for the piers in the foundation to support the weight of the 40 million pound structure. One estimate said that if all the materials in its construction had been laid end-to-end, it would have taken a train 16 miles long to haul it all in. Wow. (laughs) Now, the steel came from New York City by way of ship to Galveston, which was then taken by rail to Waco. The steel-framed building was designed to handle a hurricane wind load, making it rigid enough to withstand the pressure of the heaviest storms. And it was termed a fireproof building with a steel frame, tile, and concrete construction because it had almost no exposed wood. All offices were equipped with electric lights, both chandeliers and wall bracket, and illuminating gas. Each hallway had a white porcelain water fountain with refrigerated artesian water found on site when the foundation was being dug. A complete power plant, including electric generating machinery, high-pressure boilers for power and heating, conduits and outlets for telephone service, as well as oil-burning lamps in the hallways, were all major components of the finished building. Now, the final cost for the Alico building was $755,000 or about $17.2 million in today's money. And, and apparently well worth the investment. Oh, I would say it's definitely stood the test of time. Between 1911 and 1940, the Alico building was the place to be if you were a lawyer, accountant, doctor, or dentist. A beauty shop and a barber shop operated on the site for decades. In 1933, WACO radio station established a studio on the 8th floor and a tower on the roof of the building, which operated there for many years. Uh, The Alaco was kind of a, quote, tower of strength in the community, proving itself most ably on May 11th, 1953, when the 22-story structure swayed but did not break in those F5 winds that accompanied the Waco tornado that devastated downtown. Uh, More than 100 people were killed and several hundred injured, and millions of dollars of property damage were inflicted by the storm. But the Alico, the tallest building west of the Mississippi and south of the Mason-Dixon line until 1929, it lost only a few windows and some skylights. Terry Joe, you mentioned earlier that Lane
1: designed churches in addition to homes. Besides First Baptist Waco, what
0: other houses of worship can we see his hand in? Well, when I first came to Waco in September of uh, 2001, I recall driving around town and seeing St. Francis on the Brazos Catholic Church, Mm, and I was thinking it had to be more than 150 years old. It, It looked just like those quaint old Spanish missions in San Antonio. It does. Yeah. But I learned later that the church had actually been built in 1931, purposely modeled by its architect, Roy Lane, to resemble those much older churches of the old Southwest. Located on the northwest corner of North 3rd Street and Jefferson Avenue, it's a reproduction of the Baroque-style Old Mission San Jose in San Antonio, uh, which was—that church, of course, was built in 1720 by the Franciscan friars and their Indian converts. Lane studied the colonial architecture of Mexico and did many field trips to San Antonio with those monks to fill up his sketchbooks and seek inspiration. Mm. And the facade is ornamented with six lifestyle statues of saints, and the entire arch of the entrance is carved in a flower and fruit design. The stone carving was done by Frank T. Johnson. Uh, The famous sacristy window of San Jose was faithfully reproduced, according to the newspaper clippings of the Waco Press in September 1931. The reporter noted that the outside dimensions were exact to the model church, with only a subtle shift inside for the interior chapel. And I highly recommend anybody go by St. Francis on the Brazos Catholic Church because it's, it's a work of art unto itself, worthy of a field trip by lovers of Roy Lane, mission architecture, Italian painting, and just good old religious beauty. Indeed, it is beautiful. How long did Roy Lane stay active in his field? Well, according to the newspaper clippings on his file in the Texas collection, uh, there was an article from the Dallas Morning News of August 8, 1935, noting that Lane was the designer of the Civilian Conservation Corps camp at White Rock Lake. He designed five barracks, the mess hall, the welfare building to accommodate 240 young men in the New Deal program. Uh, The CCC was created by Franklin D. Roosevelt's administration in the depths of the Great Depression to... Help set unemployed youth to work on community projects. It was kind of known as Uncle Sam's Army of Tree Planters, among other nicknames. And that program paid physically fit single men between the ages of 18 and 28 uh, about $30 a month to help build parks, dams, roads, fight forest fires, and, you know, create... Create projects uh, to help solve erosion and flood control problems, uh, most of the money that was sent home to support their parents and siblings. We have so many beautiful structures from that time and from that program mm-hmm. oh yeah, even at our own uh, Fort Park or just a couple of counties away yeah well anyway, his uh, Lane's contributions to that CCC program, uh, which started in one thousand nine hundred and thirty three proved to be so valuable that the following year he was recognized as the first state parks architect in all of Texas. He also designed Brownwood State Park, for example. According to some of the news clippings and his biographical files at the Texas Collection, during World War II, he was also the chief architect for the Pine Bluff Arsenal in Arkansas, as well as designer of the Shoemaker Naval Ordnance Plant in Camden, Arkansas. And those are the latest references I could find of his work. Great.
1: Let's move on then to Milton Scott. Tell me about him and his stamp on Waco, Terry Jo.
0: Yes, I enjoyed uh, researching his story. He was sort of orphan boy makes good. Um, <laughs> he was known as the dean of Waco architects, and he was a self-taught genius who trained as a draftsman before taking the reins of his own business. Milton William Wallace Scott was born on August 23, 1872, in New Orleans, Louisiana, from a, and he came from a long line of Scottish builders, engineers, and inventors. His father, George, for example, was a master shipbuilder who also received a patent for a safety device that he crafted for elevators. At age 11, when his father died, the family moved to Waco to be closer to his mother's kin, the girlies. Now he was the man of the house, and he had to support three sisters and his widowed mother in 1883. Thus, never formally educated, this book-loving would-be architect began his career as a teen by training as an apprentice carpenter and then as a draftsman for his stepfather, John P. Powers, So Scott worked for uh, a number of other local farms as well. In 1906, he formed his first partnership with Glenn Allen, one of the collaborators on the First Baptist Church Sanctuary. It was during this partnership that he also designed the Artesian Manufacturing and Bottling Plant, better known now as the Dr. Pepper Museum and Free Enterprise Institute. Although damaged in the 1953 tornado, the strong bones of the building ensured that it could be repaired relatively scar-free. Uh, From 1907 to 1908, he worked with Roy E. Lane on homes for Waco's finest citizens and the Brazos Investment Company. They designed the Rotan Grocery Company, which was at the corner of 5th Street and Mary Avenue. By 1910, he was partnering with T. Brooks Pearson to work on Waco High School, uh, which was finished in 1913 at a cost of $140,000, or about $3 million in today's money. Uh, which is still a bargain for designing a high school. It is. It <laughs> is a bargain. <laughs> yeah. Uh, located uh, at 815 Columbus Avenue. The three-story structure plus basement was designed as a fireproof building with reinforced concrete. Newspaper accounts of the Times say that it had two large study halls with a capacity of 320 each and a second-floor gallery that could accommodate 800 students. I'm so glad they're saving that building because oh, it is yeah. beautiful. It is. During this same era, the Pearson Scott collaboration also produced the Waco Drug Company, which is now known as the Southwestern Drug Company building, which is Caddy corner from that Dr. Pepper plant. Scott, Pearson, and Dean were responsible for the Goldstein-Miguel Company store, a four-story structure plus basement that was, at the time, one of the largest dry goods stores in all of Texas. He designed literally scores of commercial buildings throughout downtown, including the Roosevelt Hotel at 4th Street and Austin Avenue, which, in recent years, has undergone a $15 million renovation to restore it to its former glory after many years of service as a nursing home and a senior high-rise. When did Scott finally strike out on his own? About 1913, I'm thinking. Uh, Until that time, you can see in his ads in the city directories, he's always mentioning other partners. Uh, As an independent architect, he would occasionally take on an associate, such as Dudley S. Green from 1913 to 1916, and Earl M. King from 1913 to about 1926, and then maybe two to three draftsmen as the workload dictated. Uh, Besides this Romanesque Dr. Pepper structure, one of his other buildings listed on the National Register of Historic Places is the McDermott Motors Building, also known as the Fort Fisk Wright Building, uh, at 11... 25 Washington Avenue.
1: Terry Joe, other than First Baptist Church, um, what other Scott Designed churches still exist or still around?
0: Well, there's First Lutheran Church of Waco, which is at 10th Street and Jefferson Avenue. It literally has his fingerprints all over it, uh, as does the St. John United Church of Christ in Robinson. Uh, that church was con- constructed in 1910. Uh, the Church of Christ Scientist at 11th Street and Columbus Avenue, and even the Masonic Temple at 8th Street and Washington Avenue all bear his imprint. He designed the second temple for Road of Shalom, the Reformed Jewish Congregation, in 1910, replacing the 1881 wooden structure that was located at 924 Washington Avenue. Scott also designed several of the educational buildings at the Methodist Children's Home, which was known back then as the Orphanage. He also designed numerous buildings at Baylor University, the University of Mary Harden Baylor, and Texas A&M University, as well as collaborating on some of the uh, buildings in Denton at the Texas Women's University. How about his private homes? For whom did he design? Well, I know of at least 10 homes he designed that are still standing, in addition to the Palm Court Apartments at 2005 Austin Avenue, uh, which opened in 1923. Uh, he designed the Albert T. Clifton House at 26th Street and Austin Avenue, which is now used by the Junior League of Waco. There's also the Louis Miguel House at 1425 Columbus Avenue. Other examples are found at 1401 Columbus Avenue, the Thompson House at 16th Street and Barron Avenue the H.W. Carver House at 24th Street and Colcourt Avenue, and the P.O. Crespi House at 2105 Austin Avenue. I'm familiar with many of these
1: houses, and they are beautiful and enduring. I imagine Scott had quite a following.
0: Well, disciples even, you could say. Uh, B.J. Greaves, a local preservationist, wrote a book in 1998 with Mildred G. Walker, who's curator of collections at Dr. Pepper, titled Milton Scott's Waco. It catalogs what Scott's structures were still standing in 1998. Greaves, an architect himself, says that Scott's meticulous craftsmanship was evident from day one to his later years and that his integrity of materials and design never flagged. His work literally withstood the test of time. If you look down from the suspension bridge towards downtown, looking in the path of the 1953 tornado, Every structure of more than one story that survived that storm, well, of course, except for Lane's Alico, uh, was a Milton Scott building. Thank you,
1: Terry Joe, for sharing another fascinating dimension of Texas history. Hey, and thank you
0: for giving me an excuse to revisit the legacies of these designers of downtown. It's been our pleasure. To view some of the commissions of the architect Roy E. Lane, the work
1: of architect Milton Scott or other prominent designers of old Waco housed at the Texas Collection, or read newspapers and term papers about their lives and accomplishments, visit the collection at the Carroll Library on campus. Google the Texas Collection at Baylor University to search or visit online. Please contact the archivist in advance so that any requested materials may be pulled and made available for your visit. Thank you for listening to Treasures of the Texas Collection. Join us Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and Sundays at 7 p.m. on KWBU-FM. I'm Mary Landon-Darden.
0: You have been listening to the Treasures of the Texas Collection. For more information, Google the website, The Texas Collection at Baylor University.